You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. This is the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. William Pierce, Chairman of the Department of Vascular Surgery at Northwestern University in Chicago. Uh, Dr. Pierce and I are now going to be discussing treatment for peripheral vascular disease. Dr. Pierce, where do you start once you've made the diagnosis and trying to help these patients? Well, when I sit down with my patients, I tell them that there's two problems. Uh, The first problem is their underlying atherosclerosis, and the second is the plumbing problem. And the plumbing problem is why they're seeing me, and the real problem is the underlying atherosclerosis. And I talk with them briefly about the risk factor modification. And generally, I pull out of my office the uh, AHA, American Heart Association guidelines, and we just go down the whole list, and I, I ask them if this is being treated or this is being treated, and we try to cover all the uh, categories that are listed by the American Heart Association. Is there good data showing that if we modify uh, smoking behavior, lipids, blood pressure, that that does make a difference in peripheral vascular disease? Secondary prevention in uh, vascular disease I don't think has been well studied nor proven. And I haven't seen the most recent recommendations uh, from the American Heart in this regards, but I think it's it seems only rational to suppose it's the same disease process, and if we can control it in the coronary circulation, it can be controlled in the peripheral circulation. So I make sure that all the patients are on aspirin. I try to make sure that all the patients are on statin drugs. I show them that they should have, where they should have their LDLs, at least by the most recent recommendations. If they smoke, uh, we work very hard to get them off uh, smoking. Uh, The diabetic patients, we want to keep their hemoglobin A1C under 6%. We want them to be uh, exercising, and we want their weight to be uh, in the appropriate uh, weight range. And then the the beta blockers and ACE inhibitors, I pretty much leave those recommendations uh, to my medical colleagues. Tell me more about the exercise, because uh, when patients with peripheral vascular disease often exercise, it hurts. And uh, should they push through pain? Should they avoid pain? How should we guide them? Well, I tell them any exercise is better than none, and I think the general recommendation is 30 minutes three or four times a week. And the interesting thing about exercise in the lower extremities is they can ride bicycles like crazy and they can't walk. And the difference, I think, is that they're carrying their weight when they walk. In the bicycle, you're obviously on a seat. So I tell them either to get a treadmill. Oftentimes, these are elderly patients who live in assisted living or other facilities where they have treadmills and bicycles. And I said, any exercise that you do, whether it's walking through the pain or on a treadmill exercise or even lifting weights, might be uh, helpful for your peripheral vascular disease. You mentioned to me uh, earlier about the ongoing studies about walking through pain. Could you elaborate on that again? Well, there's uh, some debate as whether walking through pain might be deleterious and actually damage the calf musculature. And we're just beginning that research. Uh, Bill Hyatt from the University of Colorado is using as the leader in this area. And I'm sort of waiting to see his literature evolve. Uh, The concern is that uh, with the ischemic insult and repeated ischemic insults by walking too much uh, may actually cause more uh, tissue death and uh, replacement by uh, fatty tissue. We've been doing CAT scans. Uh, Dr. Mary McDermott at Northwestern, who's an internist and does extensive studies on claudicators, does CAT scans of the calf, and you can actually see a fatty infiltrate in some of these calf muscles you clearly see a lot of peripheral nerve injury that's ischemic-associated occurring as a result of this. So 
the answer is not in about uh, walking through the pain, but I certainly ask the patients to try to walk to their pain and try to duplicate that every day and try to walk a few blo- a few uh, feet or blocks more uh, each day to see if they can extend their walking distance. So the answer is still out there, but the no pain, no gain may not be the best philosophy, but definitely do some of that exercise up to the point of pain. That's correct. And then medications, we, we uh, certainly like to put our patients on aspirin. Do we have good information about the best dose? Well, that's a very good question because of the aspirin resistance that uh, has been detected. I think most agree that uh, in a patient who has established vascular disease that the 81 milligrams is probably appropriate. But again, it's so difficult because the population may have within it uh, patients who have aspirin resistance, but it's hard to to know, and it's probably very expensive to test all your patients for heparin or aspirin effect. So at least 81 milligrams of aspirin would be the, the dose to be at? That's correct. Tell me about Plavix. Uh, the uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb people are coming in and uh, encouraging me to screen with ABIs and get everyone on Plavix. Uh, where does that fit in? Plavix has been shown to reduce the incidence of myocardial infarction in patients who claudicate. And patients come to me asking for that drug for their leg symptoms. And I explain to them that the Plavix is not going to change your leg symptoms, but it may prevent myocardial infarctions. At least it's shown that in some randomized studies. It's an expensive drug. um, And again, many of the patients, uh, at least in my practice, have limited resources. So I offer it to them, and I say aspirin's an alternative. uh, And so many of the patients will choose the aspirin as the alternative. What I've seen in the literature I look at, there doesn't seem to be a great benefit of combining aspirin and Plavix. Is that correct? Oh, that's correct. So Plavix not for symptomatic relief, but perhaps to help prevent an MI. That's correct. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and we are speaking with Dr. William Pierce, Chief of Vascular Surgery at Northwestern University in Chicago. How about other medications, Dr. Pierce, uh, Platol, Trentol, uh, any others on the horizon? Both Platol and Trentol were drugs that, uh, that have demonstrated efficacy in treadmill exercise testing. And in treadmill exercise testing, they either do absolute walking distance or peak walking time. Either way, that measures the ability of an individual to walk. Both of those drugs can increase the walking distance and time, but unfortunately, that doesn't always translate to real life. So I would say a good three-quarters or more of patients that I've used those drugs on do not experience a clinical benefit. Uh, It may be that they walk 50 feet more on a treadmill, but in real life, uh, they don't notice a difference. Uh, So they're walking from the train to their office which happens to be beyond their peak walking distance, they'll still have their symptoms. Or if they're walking from their home to their mailbox, which is at a distance, they'll still have their symptoms. And Pletol has a black box warning, and so I make sure they follow the black box warning. Oftentimes they complain of diarrhea after taking the drug, and you can reduce the amount that you're taking or starting dose to minimize that. But again, patients aren't often asking for drug treatments. They want to do lifestyle-altering things to, to improve their walking ability. So practically speaking, these medications really do not play a big role in the management of uh, claudication. That's correct, in my practice. Let's move on to the, the procedural ways that we can approach this. Somebody is, is having rest pain or incapacitating symptoms with medical treatment. How do we decide what the next step should be? 
it's medically indicated to do a, a, a procedure in any patient that would be potentially facing an amputation. So those are the patients that are with rest pain, that's pain in the ball of the foot at night, patients with gangrene and patients uh, with ulcers that are non-healing. So that category of patients, they're basically given no other recommendation than an intervention. In patients who claudicate, we've talked about the medical alternatives, and those patients, I sit down and speak to them and give them the pros and cons of the different interventions and a risk-benefit analysis. Everything that's done from an interventional point of view carries a risk, and is the patient willing to accept that to relieve his symptoms. And there is similar evidence in peripheral disease as in coronary disease that angioplasty can improve symptoms? There is, but there's a large difference. The the superficial femoral artery is a much longer artery. It's a larger artery, has much more diffuse disease, and we're still trying to understand which is the best stent and what's the length of the stent, the length of the lesion that the patient is best served. The uh, stenting of the lower extremity is a minimally invasive procedure. Its uh, early results, particularly with the use of Plavix in conjunction with these stenting devices, have really improved the results and anticipate they'll continue to get better and better. There's also a great deal of interest on a tool called the Fox Hollow device, and that's an atherectomy device. It's a device that drills out the plaque, and there's only preliminary information on that device. Uh, It seems appealing, but we still have to wait to get the solid answer on these uh, other devices that uh, clean out arteries. Are there certain arteries that are, if you have a blockage, angioplasty is just not an option? Most arteries in the lower extremities can undergo angioplasty. They're, as you go down the leg and uh, below the knee, the tibial arteries are about the same size as coronaries. So a lot of the coronary technology has been translated into some of those tibial vessels. And certainly we see more and more aged patients. And, uh, and so we tend to use more and more of this less invasive technology as the population is aging, we're seeing many more 80-year-olds and 90-year-olds now in our practice uh, that have these problems. And rather than to resort to some more invasive procedures, using these less invasive procedures just to temporize seems to be effective. And one more point to make is that sometimes when a patient presents with an ulcer or gangrene of a toe, you only want that artery to stay open until that ulcer is healed or that toe has been amputated. So you may set your expectations of the long-term functioning of that graft or stent of much shorter than you would in the past. I want to thank Dr. William Pierce, who's been our guest as we've been discussing treatments for peripheral vascular disease. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.